Okay, Psalm 60. The New American Standard has a very long introduction with some difficult words which are simplified. In some translations it says, For the choir director, according to Shushan Edith. Now how is that Shushan Edith translated in other versions? I got a footnote that says the lily of testimony. The lily of testimony. Some have according to the lilies, don't they? I think the NIV does, I believe. But uh, this is the lily of the covenant. Excuse me. The lily of the covenant is the NIV. So, anyway. Uh, continuing this title, a mitcom of David to teach when he struggled with Aram Naharam, with Aram Zobah, and Joab returned and smote 12,000 of Edom in the valley of Saul. Okay, verse 1. O God, you have rejected us and you have broken us. You have become angry. O restore us. You have made the land quake. You have split it open. Heal its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people experience hardship. You have given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. You have given a banner to those who fear you that it may be displayed because of the truth. Salat. I know that's translated differently in some versions. Verse 5. That, you, that your beloved may be delivered, save with your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. I will exult. I will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet of my head. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbowl. Over Edom I will throw my shoe. Shout loudly, O Philistia, because of me. Verse 9. Who will lead me to the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have Have not you yourself, O God, rejected us? And will you go out, go forth with our armies, O God? Will you not go forth with our armies, O God? I thought I said that, but I may not have. In verse 11, Oh, give us help against the adversary, for deliverance by man is in vain. Through God we shall do valiantly, and it is he who will tread down our adversaries. Now, the title, long title, it talks about when Joab returned after killing 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. Now, that seems to refer to an incident as Joab struck down the Edomites in 2 Samuel 8, verses 13 and 14. Interestingly, in that context, Victory is attributed to David. It is also mentioned in 1 Chronicles 18, verses 12 and 13. Their victory is attributed to David's brother, or Joab's brother, Abishai. 1 Kings 11, verses 15 and 16 may refer to this incident 
and it talks about Joab striking down every man in Edom. It's interesting that the victory sometimes attributed to David, sometimes attributed to Abishai, sometimes attributed to Joab, but all three as military commanders, as military commanders and kings, perhaps the victory could be attributed to all. Apparently it can, because the Bible does. And uh, here Joab smote 10,000, 12,000 in the valley of Edom, or, or of Edom in the valley of Saul. Now, what Second Samuel 8 and First Chronicles 18 do, and those are parallel passages, they talk about David's military victories as they, they talk about him victory in 2 Samuel 8 verse 1 he is victorious over the Philistines he is victorious in 8 verse 2 over the Moabites he is victorious over uh, the king of Zobah in verses uh, 8 through 3 through 8 then in 8, 9 through 12, there are some, because of this, who made alliances with David. Now, the reason I'm going into this detail, when you read Samuel and Chronicles, as it records the exploits of David, how many battles did he lose? None. None. What strikes you about this song? He's devastated because this psalm, this psalm apparently describes a defeat in battle. This psalm may hint at the fact that there are a lot of other events in the life of David that we don't even know about. That there may have been some defeats which preceded these ultimate victories that God gave. Because verses 1 through 3 definitely have the feeling of defeat. Verse 4 may too. In uh, verses 9 through 12, he's looking for help in the midst of a crisis. Now, so, but, but there is a feeling of rejection. There is a feeling of defeat in this psalm and a plea for God to bring deliverance. What, what else strikes you just about the overview of the psalm before we start talking about the specific parts more? Anything that you think in that reading that you want to comment on? So I have a note, and maybe, maybe this doesn't actually allow for this, I'm not sure, but David expanded the kingdom, and in some ways he did it a lot northerly. Some have assumed while he was fighting in the north that Edom came and defeated Israel from the south while maybe he was away. Is that possible? It, it is possible. We are not given that detail in the text. But, but the reason that that is possible, it says he struggled with Aram Neharim and Aram Zobah. Those seem to refer to areas to the far north. In the Old Testament, the term Aram is used in some translations, while other translations have the term Syria. The same nation is under discussion. And there's 
there's not as much debate that goes behind that as may sound like it because nobody's doubting what nations under discussion we're asking what term best identifies those people at various points in biblical history and um, so if you call them Arameans if you call them Syrians you're, you're still talking about the same group that lived to the north of Israel. Uh, again, let me draw, because I just haven't done it in a while and it's fun to do. Uh, let me draw you my map. Of Here is Palestine and Eshu. But Arab would have been way up here in this kind of northern region. Their main city would have been what in the Old Testament? Damascus. Yeah, Damascus would have been their main city. And so it may be that as David sends his defenses or sends his army here, there is an attack from Edom. That would, that would fit, uh, but we don't know with certainty that that is it. But notice how he opens the psalm on a note of defeat. Now, sometimes I don't point out that pronouns are significant unless I say they're emphatic. We do have one emphatic pronoun in verse 10 and it's translated well in the New American Standard. Have not you yourself, O God, rejected us. It's translated in a very emphatic way. The pronouns are not emphatic in the first three verses, but in spite of that, the you is addressed to God, and one writer states in a very real way, the enemies of Psalm 60 are not the Edomites, but in a sense God. Now you understand what I'm saying in that. He's taking his plea to him, and he says, Oh God, You've rejected us. You've broken us. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. And notice the terms he uses of God. God's rejected us. God's broken us. God's become angry. Verse 2, you've made the lands quake. You have split it open. In verse 3, you have made your people experience hardship. You have given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. Some seven expressions that he uses there about God and his relationship to Israel. Oh God, you have rejected us. You have rejected us. The term, by the way, that is used in the Septuagint for this is the word that's used also in the New Testament in Romans 11 verses 1 and 2 that says God has not rejected His people. But I know how it can feel like that, at least temporarily. And we've all probably felt like that temporarily. But, oh God, you have rejected us. You've broken us. Now, this word used in 60 verse 1, translated broken, is used, it can mean to break forth. To burst upon. 
it is used in 2 Samuel 5 and verse 20 for God breaking out on the Philistines. It is also used, and there is a play on names between this Hebrew word and the name for um, Perez in 2 Samuel 6 and verse 8. It is used for God breaking forth on Uzzah when Uzzah touched the ark in 2 Samuel 6 and verse 8. Oh God, you have rejected us. You have broken us. A word that is sometimes used to describe God bursting forth against His enemies in conflict is now used to describe God bursting forth against His people. You have broken us. You have become angry, the text says. Moses says in Deuteronomy, God was angry with me on your account in Deuteronomy 1.37. In Deuteronomy 4 and verse 21, God has rejected us. God has broken us. God has become angry with us. And He says, restore us. Restore us. Psalm 80 will use uh, this, these words, restore us, some three times. Psalm 80 verse 3, Psalm 80 verse 7, Psalm 80 verse 19. Restore us, God. Restore us to a right relationship with you. Restore us to fellowship with you. You have made the land quake. Now, we have seen this kind of language... You've made the land quake. God is pictured in dramatic terms as coming to the earth and causing a whole upheaval in the land in passages like Psalm 18, verses 7 through 15. You've made the land a quake. Uh, same kind of language there uh, used in um, Psalm 68 verse 8. But again, this is language that is used to describe God defeating enemies in battle. But now, the ones that God is defeating in battle are His people. You have rejected us. You've broken us. You've become angry. You've made the land quake. You have split it open. Now this is a word that appears only here. And uh, therefore we have no parallels to run to. But He begs God, Heal its breaches for it totters. Heal its breaches. Remember if this my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Second Chronicles 7 verse 14. He is begging that God heal their land. In Exodus chapter 15 verse 26 the Lord is the healer of the people. The Lord is the one who heals, who blesses them. You've made the land quake. You've split it open. 
heal its breaches, for it totters. It totters. Now, today some of you were present and we studied Psalm 112. Psalm 112. It was a men's only study. None of you women were welcome there. But in Psalm 112.6, it talks about the man who is gracious and kind. He will never be shaken. That word that's translated shaken there in 112.6 is the same word totters here. While the righteous man will not be shaken, will not totter, the text used here, heal its breaches for it The whole land is tottering. This word is also used in a multitude of other psalms. It's not the only one. Uh, but in uh, Psalm 46, for example, um, there the mountains totter or are moved into the heart of the sea. Or, or But... but uh, the Bible says the Lord will not totter if you remember that passage. Psalm 46. Is there any question I needed to answer there? Any verse that I didn't give? Or maybe give the wrong verse? You've made your people experience hardship. And that word for hardship is often used to describe Egyptian bondage. Exodus 1.14 is a good example of that. Exodus 1.14, Exodus 6.9. You've made your people experience hardship. You've given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. In the Old Testament, it's not limited to the Old Testament actually, but there is a picture of the cup of God's wrath that God pours out for the wicked to drink as a judgment. This drinking from this cup causes people to, to stagger. Jeremiah 25 even tells us to drink from this cup causes it's not only staggering and reeling, but it causes people to vomit. This, this cup of God's wrath that's poured out upon the wicked is here. Made for Israel to drink. You've made your people experience hardship. You've given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. Whatever the people have experienced, they know its ultimate cause is God. Because God is the Lord of history. Now, I know that some might say that's very accusatory. It's pointing the finger at God. But it's a recognition that God is controlling history. And God could stop the wrongs that are done in history at any moment. I understand why the language strikes us as strong and it may not always be completely accurate. It may represent a person's feelings but not the reality. 
But at the same time, I think it's full of faith in the sense that it understands God's rule in history. God is in control of people and nations. And so it's prayed from that perspective. Now verse 4 is going to be translated differently in some versions. You have given us a banner to those who fear you. Do any of your translations differ at that point? You've given us a banner to those who fear you. Mary? Fear you. Okay, yeah, fear you. Uh huh. Giving us a banner to those who fear you. Now, this part is where I know it's different, son. That it may be displayed because of the truth. Silah. What do some of your versions have? So that they can flee before the archers. Okay. Or to be unfurled against the bow. Okay. ESV says that they may flee to it from the bow. Okay. Bow and truth. Those are two words I think of together. <laughs> I'm glad you caught my sarcasm there. Now, but but the point the point of that is this particular word that's translated truth in the New American Standard Version is only used twice in the Old Testament and this is one of the places. And so it's difficulty knowing how to translate it and the other place that it's used is in Proverbs 22 verse 21 and uh, there in Proverbs 22 verse 21 it um, says to make you know the certainty of the words of truth. Now, you say, where do we get the translation bow? This is from the Septuagint and other ancient versions. So the question is, one of the big questions in some of the translate on a difficult verse, do you stick to the Hebrew text... Or when you see these ancient versions that understood it a certain way, do you go with those? That's the reason for some difficulties in translation in the Psalms. Now, this is part of the difference. If that word is truth in verse 4, this is the first real glimmer of hope in Psalm 60. The first real, I know he's begged God, restore us. He's begged God, heal its breaches. And he, but, but this would be the first glimmer of hope. If it is the bow, it's probably a continuation of that picture of judgment. Now, let me illustrate from the word banner. This word banner. I do like that big board downstairs. I do have to say that. But this word banner that is used here in 60 verse 4 sometimes carries with it the idea. For example, it's used in Isaiah 11 and verse 12 as the nation seeing this banner and signal and all being drawn to it. 
Jews there. But it's also used, so it's used, I would say, there in a very positive sense. But it's also used in Jeremiah 4, verse 6. For this banner is being held up in the city of Judah so that the people that are in the towns that need to get away from those towns and come to the safety of the city of Jerusalem where there's solid walls can get there to flee. So, so there it is used in a more negative sense of somewhere you run when you're in trouble and you have nowhere else to go. So what does it mean here? You've given a Is this some kind of victory and positive statement that here is our uh, here is our army and we're going to win the victory, or is it a statement you come for you that are being that are fleeing and trying to get away? Come here, come here. This is where you need to run for safety. It's really hard to tell. It's hard to tell of uh, which it is. So. I'm not sure. Aren't, the, aren't those not more similar, though? I mean, if, if it's a banner that you're fighting under, uh, there's, there's this coming together around this. Yes. And the same way if, A, if you're in trouble, come here as a yeah. signal. I don't know. I, I see them yes, necessarily it, diametrically opposed. Yes, I, I understand what you're saying. And that is, and that is true. And that is a good point. Um, they, the, the idea of a banner is not diametrically opposed for the very fact the same word is used, but it's probably not positive and negative in the same sentence uh, would be the only thing I would say. And, and so I, but I understand what you're saying, and that is a good point. But um, verse 5 is definitely a positive statement. That your beloved may be delivered, save with your right hand and answer us. Remember back in verse 3 he said you've made the people experience hardship and we talked about that word for hardship is used for the bondage of Egypt in Exodus 1 13 and 14. Save with your right hand in the poem of Exodus 15 where they celebrate deliverance from Egypt, they talk about God's right hand in Exodus 15 verse 6 in Exodus 15 verse 12. He's asking God in effect, save us like you did in the times of the Exodus. We're experiencing that kind of hardship and bring your salvation. Verse 6, now Verse 6 differs at this point. We have a change of speaker in verses 6 through 8. The speaker is God in verses 6 through 8. Here in verses 1 through 5, it is the people who are crying out to God. And they have addressed God as you and your. But now God is speaking in verse 6. And it says, God in His holiness. Now some of you have God in His sanctuary. Here it is not a question of do you follow the Hebrew text or the Greek text. It is just a question, how should this word be translated? It can be translated validly either way. It can be a reference to God's holiness. It can be a reference to God's holy place. I would kind of lean toward His holiness. But 
Either translation is valid. God has spoken in His holiness. I will exalt. I will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet of my head. Judah is my scepter. Now, in verse verse 6, I will exalt, I will portion out Shechem. I will portion out Shechem. This word is used among the places it's used. Joshua 13, 7, 14, 5, 18, 2, 5, 10, 19, Now what does all that mean? What that means, this was after the conquering of the land and they portioned this land out to various tribes. It's the same idea here. God is saying the land is mine and just as God divided this land among the tribes in Joshua 13 to Joshua 19 I will portion out Shechem. I will measure out the valley of Succoth. And it mentions in verse 7 we have mentioned here one region, Gilead, and three specific tribes, Manasseh, Ephraim, Judah. Why would you say they were selected? What would be your thoughts? Geographically, you've got uh, land on both sides of the river. Okay, very good. Very good. I hate it at this moment. That I raise my map. But, but they, you do, as John says, you have land on both sides, Gilead across the Jordan, Manasseh on both sides of the Jordan, and, um, and then Ephraim and Manasseh, or Ephraim and Judah on the other side of the Jordan. So, so that, that's one point. I think that is correct. What else would you say? I would suggest this, that Ephraim is the leading tribe in the north and Judah in a sense may have been all there was pretty much in the south but sometimes they're mentioned together for example in in Psalm 78 verses 67 and 68 he also rejected the tent of Joseph he did not choose the tribe of Ephraim but chose the tribe of Judah Mount Zion which he loved. So Ephraim and Judah leading tribes among the people. Ephraim is my helmet. God is pictured as a warrior who is conquering the land. Judah, my scepter. A king held a scepter and ruled. And isn't it significant that Judah is associated with the scepter? Remember in the blessing of Jacob in Genesis 49 verse 10 the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor ruler's staff from between his feet. So it kind of invokes Genesis 49 here. 
Though Gilead's mine, Manasseh's mine, Ephraim is the helmet of my head, Judah is my scepter. I think he takes a dramatic shift here in verse 8 from, from mentioning Ephraim as a helmet and Judah as a scepter. Moab, my washbowl. Over Edom, I'll throw my shoe. Now, what's the idea of mentioning Moab, Edom, and the Philistines? Philistia. Enemy nations. Enemy nations, not his people. My washbowl. You know, I've just washed my hands and feet in, in, in this nation. Edom, I throw my shoe on that. Now, that could just make it an insignificant place. Let me read a passage to you. How does it help you? in understanding this if it does it all. Every place on which the sole of your foot shall tread will be yours. What Pat that's Deuteronomy eleven twenty four. What how does that help you? Or does it? How's that help? It could just be like taking possession of something. And, and, and where might be another passage that leads to that idea? Uh, well, this is this may be separate from what you're thinking. Could it have anything to do with refusal to redeem, it, like we see in uh, in Ruth? And they took the shoe off and yeah. gave it to somebody else. Yeah. And and it also could be in Ruth four. It mentions it as a kind of insulting gesture, you know. So. It could be all of these kind of things are wrapped up in that, Mary. It still is in modern Arab nations very insulting like that. Oh, there was a press conference where someone threw a shoe. I think it was a bush, maybe. Yes, that was right. I remember that. <laughs> yeah, they, they made the point that it was highly insulting in that culture. Okay, okay, very good. Very well, I don't good. know if it dates back this far. <laughs> yes, um, but... But I mean that would be that that is I mean, some of these cultural things are preserved among peoples and nations. Um, though I don't know that throwing a shoe is good in any language. Um, but John. So when he says God has spoken, is this a, a new revelation, or is this just reflective of what God has already said about you know Israel? and his relationship with them compared to the nations, how they would subdue the nations as his people. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if he's saying that this was in effect a new revelation or an old one. Uh, but what will be apparent is there seems to be a contrast between what God has spoken and what reality was in 1 through 3 and 9 through 12. And so he's begging God, in effect, keep these promises. Yes, yes. And, in the moment, do it's what not you're saying. It, it, at the moment, it doesn't at least seem to be matching up. And look at, look at verse the last part of verse 8. It says, now the New American Standard, and some of your versions will have this differently, it says, shout loud, O Philistia, because of me. What do some of your other versions have? Shout in triumph because of me. Shout in triumph because of me. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. Okay, over Philistia, I shout. You know, who's doing the shouting? Is Philistia doing the shouting? Is God doing the shouting? 
Now, let me... This is one thing that's interesting. Psalm 60... It may me get a different color, but I, this, there's no theological point in this. But Psalm 60, verses 5 to 12 is repeated in Psalm 108, verses 6 to 13. This is repeated. Um, and in Psalm 108, verse 10, uh, verse 9, excuse me, it's very clear, over Philistia I will shout. And some think that's the better text here even though the Hebrew text makes it kind of difficult to determine who's doing the shouting. But I think all of these are expressions, verse 8, all of these are expressions of victory over these nations, over Moab, over Edom, over the Philistines. And by the way, all those nations are mentioned in 2 Samuel 8, 1 Chronicles 18. All those nations are pictures being defeated. They were enemies surrounding Israel and near Israel and God is giving them victory. But, but as we were stating in response to what John was saying, it doesn't seem like, what, how, whenever the revelation is given, it doesn't seem like the facts of history are matching up. The facts of God's revelation aren't matching up with their history. And he asks in verse 9, Who will bring me into the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? Edom was mentioned among two other nations in verse 8. But Edom seems to be the focal point here. It's mentioned in the title. It's mentioned again in verse 9. Who will bring me into the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? Who will lead me here? Obviously, the answer here could be no one but God. And so in a sense, this question is a statement, a recognition that only God can protect us and can defend us. It's, it's a rhetorical question. Only God can do this. In verse 10, Have not you, O yourself, and here that's emphatic, have not you yourself, O God, rejected us? Same verb used in verse 1. Choose again. Have not you rejected us? And will you not go forth with our armies, O God? God, you've decreed that you'll throw your shoe upon Edom. Will you not go forth with our armies? Maybe behind David's ultimate victories over all these nations were temporarily defeats. In verse 11, Oh, give us help against the adversary for deliverance by man is in vain. Let me quote a passage to you. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain who build it. Except the Lord watch the city, the watchmen keep awake in vain. It is vain to retire early, to rise early and to retire late. 
Those are from Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2. It uses the same term for in vain three times in the first two verses of Psalm 127. He recognizes that help from God, help from any but God is vain. Deliverance by man is vain. He knows that only God can lead them forth against Edom and bring them into a besieged city. As Psalm 146 says, Do not trust in princes, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs, he returns to the earth, and that very day his thoughts perish. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. The Lord is the solid ground of our trust and confidence. If God doesn't give us help, against the adversary, there will be no help. Deliverance by man is vain. But he ends in verse 12, Through God we shall do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our adversaries. Verse 1 had said, Oh God, you've rejected us. But now in verse 12, he affirms, We shall do valiantly. He will tread down our adversaries. Um, by the way, there is no confession of sin in that psalm, is there? No confession of sin. And that is often the case, particularly with national laments. This, the word tread down, it's used in verse 12, is also used in Isaiah 63 and verse 6 which uses the image of the winepress of God's wrath and God takes the wicked and throws them in a wine vat and crushes them with His feet. He treads down the enemy and this is a picture of what He will do with these enemies. Now, there's a sense in a moment, Lord willing, we're going to talk about how this psalm can point to Jesus and how you would use it for that. But there's a sense in which all the Bible tells the story of the Bible. What do I mean? I don't know if that's... I'm, and I may not be phrasing it well. But this is what I mean. God's people have experienced... A horrible crisis. And in this crisis, there is no one but God big enough to help. And finally, he affirms in boldness that God will help and God will do valiantly. Now, that's the story of Israel's battles in the Old Testament. That they face a crisis, that they face a trouble, they face an enemy that's bigger than they are. Man cannot help and man's strength cannot give victory and therefore we can only look to God. That's why it's important to study the whole Bible. If you study the Old Testament and you see these conflicts and you see these wars, in a very real sense, they tell the story 
of salvation. Because isn't that the same in dealing with the major problem of the Bible, sin and death? We face a crisis. Man can't deliver us from the crisis. Only God can deliver us from the crisis. The message of the Bible keeps coming back to these same points over and over and therefore we have to have an appreciation for all of Scripture. Any part we choose to ignore, we do so to our own peril. But any questions you have on Psalm 60 before we talk about how Jesus fulfills this psalm, do you have any questions here? You can shout them out as I can't call on you right now, but any of you? Okay, if not, let's talk about how Jesus fulfills this psalm. When you think about Psalm 60, how is Psalm 60 fulfilled in Jesus? It's about Judah as my scepter, and you referred to okay. the blessing of Jacob, the scepter would not depart from Judah. Okay, he connects Judah with leadership and kingship, <coughs> just like Genesis 49, verse 10. It is evident that our Lord sprang out of the tribe of Judah. A tribe of which nothing is spoken concerning priesthood. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 14. I think it's verse 14. It's right around there. But Judah and kingship. And of course, the first verse of the New Testament, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, son of David, son of Abraham. He is like David from the tribe of Judah. And this one who is born to be king is from that tribe. Judah is my scepter. Judah is my scepter. So yes, very good point, David. And um, what else? What other thoughts? I know you've got something. Verse 11 uh, speaks to how human health is worthless against the foe that we're facing. Okay. Only God can save us. Okay. Only... God can defeat sin and death. Only God can. I know I've used this illustration at some point here, but I, I marvel sometimes at people not understanding the implications of what they're saying. One day I was in, it was a very 
I have to say, it was a very kind and cordial discussion. But it was with a couple of unbelievers. And they said, there is no problem that man is not solved. There is no what? Problem that man is not solved. And I just, I, the, the wonder of a statement like that is you're just so dumbfounded. You don't know how to respond. And I said, nobody dies where you are? Nobody gets sick? Well, well, outside of, you know, a few things like that, you know, there's no problem that man has a, that's kind of a big, that's kind of a big problem. It's kind of a big problem. Only God can deliver from these foes of sin and death. Um, what else? What about the, you were talking about the cup of God's wrath and Jesus drinks that cup. Okay. You have given us the wine to drink that makes us stagger. And Jesus prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What is the background for that cup? There's another passage that we'll encounter later in Psalms, in Psalm 75, verse 8. Psalm 75, verse 8. It says, For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams and is well mixed, and He pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. God pours His judgments into a cup. He forces the wicked to drink it down. Here Israel has drunk that wine and they are made to stagger. But Jesus will drink that cup. Somebody pointed out there's a cup with my name on it that Jesus... Yes. Yes. That's right. We can... I've read that somewhere. But we can choose. Jesus drank the cup for us. And we can submit to him or say no thanks. We'll drink it ourselves. But the difference is between life and death. Between salvation and judgment. What else? Is, is there anything uh, you would make out of verse 5 where he speaks of your beloved? Okay. Uh, Ray, did you have a thought? Oh, sorry. Were um, you? I was wondering about verse 4. Um, it says, You have given a banner to those who fear you that it may be displayed because of the, tr the truth. And hasn't Christ given his church? the responsibility to take his banner and and to fight on his behalf. To okay. talk evangelism. Talk about, we sing about onward Christian soldiers. Okay. Okay. And to be that kind of goes. Okay, I understand what you're saying. That's a good point. We'll, we'll come to that in just a second, Ray. As Boyd first had said about the beloved. Um, this is the the same word used 
in the Greek translation is the word used of Jesus when the Father speaks of Him as my beloved in Matthew 3, 17. When He quotes from Isaiah 42, 1 in, in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter uh, 17, verse 5 at the transfiguration. Same word that is used to describe Jesus is used here to describe Israel. Now, the banner. Um, I understand. I, let's just tie that in with the thought here, right? Let's come to something else first. You know, God says, I'll portion out Shechem, I'll measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Edom's, Moab is my washbowl, Edom, I'll throw my shoe. You know, how, however degrading the terms of verse 8 may be in contrast to the more glorious terms in verse 7, the idea is that God controls all. God controls all. God is God of everything. Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. For lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. And so God controls all, and in a sense has brought us forth, as Ray is saying in verse 4, as we are soldiers, soldiers of peace, who carry His message of peace and salvation, who carry His message of deliverance, who are hiding ourselves, what best represents the banner is a question too. Is a cross itself the banner? Uh, is, but, but, but I think what you're saying is true, that we carry that message of His salvation to all these lands that He's conquered in hopes that they will be reconciled to Him. Because He has been victorious over our adversaries. He treads them down. He has He's a rider on the white horse in Revelation 19. That's right. In Revelation 19, treads them, um, our adversaries, and, and, and even at the cross, um, I'm trying to get the wording of Colossians 2.15. I'm not getting the exact remembering, but uh, Colossians 2.15 He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them having triumphed over them triumphed over them but yes you know, He has won the victory and we proclaim that both in terms of Colossians 2.15 and Revelation 19.11-16 and he did that per verse 2 when the land quaked and it split open. Okay. And he died and when he rose. Okay. The land quaked. Matthew 27. Let's look at verse 51. Matthew 27. Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. 
and rocks were split, and tombs were opened, and many body of the, bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. But in Matthew 27 and verse 51, the land quaked in Matthew 28 in verse Two, when the angel of the Lord descended to roll away the stone, Matthew 28 verse 2, Behold, a severe earthquake occurred, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. So this dramatic event, when we see Jesus dying on the cross, He's drank the cup of God's wrath, it is such a dramatic event. Truly, the land quakes. Just as this passage speaks of. It will quake at His death. It will quake at His resurrection. And because of that, we can be confident that God has not rejected us, but brought us into fellowship with Him. Very good thoughts, people. Y'all have anything else? Well, I was kind of the opposite. I should, um, we'll throw it out. Verse 1, um, he's, God's broken them down and has been displeased because God came to convict the world of sin <laughs> and then He restores us. So, okay. It's through Jesus experiencing the penalty of sin that God restores us back to Himself. Yes. And, um, but very good thoughts. And I appreciate that. And I don't know if we have a song. We And uh, we are glad to have Ray visiting with us most every week. Sometimes he has... Uh, responsibilities at Plainfield, but would you lead us in prayer as we close, Ray? Our great and loving Father, we humble ourselves before you to offer you our glory and praise as the only true and living God. Father, we, we praise you for your love and for your kindness and for the ways that you care for us that we may not even always realize at the time. Father, we're thankful to you, most especially for your Son and for the sacrifice that he made that we might have hope of one day living with you. We're thankful, Father, for the words that you've given us to understand more about you and about the kind of people you want us to be. Father, help us to consider the things that we've discuss from your word tonight that we might put them into our hearts and use them to improve our understanding of your will and our ability to serve you. Help each of us, Father, to continue through this week renewed in our zeal to, to serve you and to tell others about you while time remains. We ask through Christ. Christy, if you'll take a picture of that. You always say things that I hadn't thought of in this. And uh, so I appreciate the thoughts that you give.
you want to record the song? What's do you want to record the song? So we have two songs uh, on the verses 1 through 5. He loves me. And on the back, uh, we sing for all the unsung saints. If you look at the bottom of that, that's a tune, Kingsfold County Down, that in some songbooks is used over and over with different songs. Uh, so if you don't recognize that by name, you, you'll probably recognize it when we sing it. Uh, Verses 1 through 5 to the tune of He Loves Me. Which one's first? Uh, Verses 1 through 5. Yeah, He Loves Me. Mm No, no, me, no, no, me, so. Oh God, Thou hast rejected us, hast broken us once more. Has Thou with us, hast angry been, oh once again restore. For Thou hast made the earth to quake, hast torn it fearfully. For lo, it shakes in agony. For thou hast made the people see the hardness of distress, and thou hast made them drink the wine of reeling drunkenness. But those that fear. Verses 6 through 11. No, 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 so me, no, no, te long, no. God in his holiness declared, let me exulting shout. Because of me, 